All right, we are back. I think we're pretty much going to talk about the Duquesne Conference here for our second segment. And if we're going to talk about journalism in relationship to the case and its failings, I think we're going to have to briefly at least outline what has taken place over the past 50 years. As we were flying back to California, I was chatting with Dr. Gary Aguilar about this case. And I said, you know, Gary, I think this whole thing reminds me of the old story about the seven blind men and the elephant. I think you may know this one from childhood. According to the story, seven blind men were sent out to investigate what there was to say about an elephant. And as each came back, they described their experiences with the elephant. One, of, one said it was like a fan. Another said it was like a tree. Another said it was like a spear. Another said it was like a rope. One blind man described it as like a wall. And of course, we know that each blind man could only appreciate one part of the elephant by his experience touching it. We find it to be an amusing story because we have in our mind's eye a very clear picture of what an elephant is supposed to look like and why it is that each man touching only a part of it was seeing a non-representative fraction of the whole. But as I said to Dr. Aguilar, I think in this case, we have the reports of seven blind men about what an elephant's like, but we don't know actually what the elephant is supposed to look like. Gary pointed out that that might not even be bad enough. I said, yeah, maybe you're right. Perhaps one of the blind men was actually sent out to examine a horse. Josiah Thompson gave an excellent talk about how he reconstructs the actual murder in Dealey Plaza. And he likened the case to a giant jigsaw puzzle where a lot of the pieces are missing. But even worse, a lot of illegitimate pieces have been added. Pick your metaphor. They both can apply. But I think what I need to do dear listener, is just kind of try and give you a two-minute or three-minute summary of how things evolved over the past five decades. Let's go with a third metaphor here, that of a tennis match. On one side is serving officialdom, official reports, official findings, what the government has to say. On the other side is a motley crew of citizens that had doubts about the official findings. Back in 1963, on November 22nd, by the evening of the day of the crime, the Dallas police were notified by the feds that you have your man. When reporters asked Chief Jesse Curry of the Dallas Police Department if there was a conspiracy, his answer was, it's only him. Now, of course, by any possible standards of investigation, which would include interrogating the suspect at some length and actually doing some investigation. Now, under normal circumstances, you'd probably have to interrogate the prisoner for a while and do a, a little bit of poking around before you could make such a pronouncement as, it's only him. But the fact is, that was the posture taken very early on. In fact, Mr. McMillan, I can't really do this as a long narrative. Let me, in, let me insert parts of the conference as we go along, and they may be relevant. Bill Kelly gave a talk at the conference about the tapes of Air Force One which paints a very vivid picture related to what I just said about, you know, it's Oswald and only Oswald. As the presidential party, with the new newly sworn in president, was flying back to Washington, D.C., we know from three separate reports from credible journalists, in this case, Pierre Salinger, William Manchester, and Theodore H. White, that the Situation Room in the White House radioed to the presidential aircraft, no conspiracy. We also now know that that exchange cannot be found in the currently existing copies of the tape, which we know to have been edited. A lot of people started asking the rather valid question, how could they have known? <laughs> Not so long after the shooting. After Oswald was himself killed, the FBI did an investigation of the case and concluded that he had done it, he'd done it alone, there were three shots, there were three hits, end of story. But 
both the Justice Department in the person of Nicholas Katzenbach, acting attorney general, as Robert Kennedy was by that point something of a basket case, and the head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, both urged President Johnson to convene a commission to look into the crime. They both used eerily similar language in stating that the public needs to be reassured that Oswald was the real assassin. So it was that the Warren Commission was set up to prove that Lee Harvey Oswald was the only assassin, and that, furthermore, he had no co-conspirators and no help whatsoever. He was a Marxist, a communist defector, a sociopath, a nut. While the Warren Commission was putting together uh, all the paperwork that was going to inevitably come to that conclusion, attorney Mark Lane in New York came forward to, as he put it, represent Oswald's interests before the Warren Commission. Acting like a defense attorney, Lane started raising issues about the case against Oswald. Although, as he said during the conference, he was the only witness that the Warren Commission ever called back. You can be sure about one thing, they weren't very happy with him. But nevertheless, in September of 1964, the Warren Commission report was published. On the very day it was published, it was universally hailed as being a remarkable piece of scholarship, thoroughly researched, a work that would last through the ages. The trouble was, as people later found out, all these people that wrote these glowing reviews of it had not yet read it. People like Tom Wicker, who praised it highly, admitted later, oh my God, I couldn't have read the thing. It was hundreds of pages long. And for the first year after the Warren Commission report was published, there seemed to have been virtually no criticism here in the United States about its findings. Well, I was highly amused by one anecdote from a speaker, and I can't remember who said this, who pointed out when the president of Ghana was presented a copy of the Warren Commission report by the American ambassador, he flipped open the page, pointed down at Alan Dulles, and looked up and said simply, whitewash. A couple of books were published overseas, critical of the Warren Commission report. In fact, a couple were published even before the report came out. But it took until, you know, 65, 66 for some bestsellers to arise that really got the public wondering about what had happened. This was Mark Lane's Rush to Judgment, Harold Weisberg's Whitewash, and Edward Epstein's Inquest. By this point, there was clearly doubt in the public mind about the findings of the Warren Commission. In fact, Life magazine, which owned the Zapruder film, it purchased the film on the day of the assassination, made a couple copies available to the FBI and Secret Service, and then kept the master in their vaults. Back in 1966, Life started taking out the film and looking at it very carefully. Josiah Thompson got involved in the investigation at this point, working for Life magazine, and was witness to the issue that came out three years after the crime in November of 1966 that called the lone assassin theory a matter of reasonable doubt. This is based on the fact that when you looked at good clear slides, blow-ups of the film, it appeared very clearly that Governor Conley and President Kennedy were struck by two separate bullets. And what you may not be aware of, dear listener, is that back in 1964, that's what everybody thought happened, including the FBI. Well, that's at first. Looking at the film, you see Kennedy react, then you see Conley react. Conley, to the day he died, insisted that he'd been hit by a separate bullet from the first one that struck the president. His wife, Nellie, testified that she looked back and saw the reaction of the president to being struck by the first bullet and then observed her husband take the next one. This was not the official finding of the Warren Commission. They had a problem. The FBI informed them that the alleged murder weapon 
had such an incredibly finicky, bulky bolt action that can only be cycled once every 2.3 seconds. Of course, that didn't even include aiming. That was just working the mechanism of the rifle. Since on film it appeared the two men were struck in a shorter interval than that, there was a problem. But as Thompson would note to his dismay, after publishing that one issue, life abandoned their investigation into what happened to John F. Kennedy. The New York Times had a simultaneous investigation, and that quietly went by the boards. So Thompson proceeded and wrote his own book about what he suspected happened. It came out in 1967. It was called Six Seconds in Dallas. It is still considered one of the uh, seminal works in the case, and it attracted some attention. In fact, back at the Justice Department, as we served the tennis ball back over the other side of the net, we find that Attorney General Ramsey Clark sent out a memo saying that something was going to be done to counter this junk coming out of Thompson. Ramsey Clark asked the photographer, the radiologist, and two of the autopsy pathologists to certify that the existing record of photographs and x-rays was complete. This they dutifully did, even though a couple of the pathologists had noted that there was a couple pictures that were missing. They even cited this in their Warren testimony. The photographer would later say that when he was asked to sign that paper, he looked at it and said, well, I don't think this is true. He was then told, sign it. When he was later asked about that by the House Select Committee on Assassinations, someone pointed out that, you know, there are people that resist under those circumstances, to which photographer Stringer replied, well, yeah, but they don't last very long. Now, at this point in time, to go back over the net again, down in New Orleans, District Attorney Jim Garrison was looking into the Kennedy case. The Department of Justice of the United States knew this by 1966, and after asking the personnel from the autopsy to falsely certify that the record was complete, they then asked the pathologist to review their record to see if they wouldn't, didn't conclude that they'd gotten it right. They said they did. But something was still up. One of the autopsy pathologists was asked by someone in the U.S. Justice Department to write a letter that would just quietly request that an outside panel take a look at these photos and x-rays and make sure everything was going to pass muster, which Dr. Boswell did. What would be later known as the Clark Panel then convened with four supposedly non-government pathologic experts with four supposedly non-government pathologists, experts in their field, and reviewing the x-rays and, uh, and photographs, they concluded that, yes, the pathologist back in 1963 had gotten it correct. There was evidence for two shots that struck the president, both of which came from the upper rear. They did point out a couple of surprising problems with the materials, however. They claimed that the autopsy pathologist misplaced the wound. They put it four inches lower than it actually was. Since the height of your head's only about five or six inches on a good day, this was a rather notable error. Nevertheless, point to government. Official panel looked at it and said, yeah, basically, they got it right. The counterattack on the critics then continued from the private sector, in this case, CBS News, which in June of 1967 put together a four-part series looking at the controversies regarding the Kennedy assassination. They did things like construct a tower, put well-noted sharpshooters up in it and see if they could duplicate what Oswald supposedly had done. In spite of the fact these were some of the nation's best marksmen in almost every case, they failed miserably in reproducing Oswald's sharpshooting. But CBS News would conclude before it was done that, well, basically the Warren Commission may have made an error here or there, but they, they got it right. They cited experts like Nobel Prize laureate in physics Louis Alvarez from UC Berkeley, 
who noted that in the famous Zapruder film, there was some jiggles, which indicated that the photographer had reacted to the sound of bullets. It was an insightful analysis, and to no small degree, correct. However, and I remember this from being a kid watching this, when he was asked by CBS what this meant, his answer was, well, it proves that Oswald did it. It, of course, proved nothing of the kind. Just to have a slight sidebar on the subject of Luis Alvarez, he also came to the rescue of the Warren Commission on another matter a couple of years after that. When the Zapruder film was shown at the trial of Clay Shaw down in New Orleans, people noticed that it appeared, when you watched it as a movie, that the president was smacked backward by the impact of the fatal bullet. Some found this inconsistent with being shot from the rear, which, of course, it is. Alvarez then claimed when he shot a bunch of melons, without exception, he found that the jet effect of spray exiting the target would virtually inevitably cause it to come back in the direction of the shot. Fast forward many years later, in the wake of Oliver Stone's movie, yours truly, with the assistance of Mr. McMillan, decided to test this hypothesis. I asked a man in Berkeley who'd taken part in those shooting experiments of Dr. Alvarez how he'd done it. He told me what they did. So Mr. McMillan and I went out to a gun range, set up a video camera, shot the hell out of 30 melons, and guess what? Dr. Alvarez was not telling the truth. What he said happened was not what inevitably happened. And further research into this has pretty well established the jet effect is a fiction. Oh yes, an occasional pumpkin or can may come back at the shooter, but that's not enough to move a human body around. After a D.A. Jim Garrison's case more or less fell apart down in New Orleans. There was a lot of help out there trying to guarantee that his, uh, his case would fall apart. The whole matter kind of went cold. Watergate became the, uh, the, hot, uh, the hot item on the American political scene in terms of major scandals. And out of that, there were a couple notable investigations. The Rockefeller Commission, which looked into um, excesses of the CIA and other monkey business going on at the highest level. And the Church Committee in the Senate was convened to take a look at uh, abuses of the Central Intelligence Agency. It turned out that both of these investigations did touch on the question of what happened to John F. Kennedy. A lot of rather hair-raising uh, headlines came out of those investigations, particularly when the Church Committee discovered that there had been all kinds of assassination plots being organized by the Central Intelligence Agency. Oh, by the way, the CIA admitted, was it a month ago, that they did overthrow the Mossadegh government in Iran back in uh, 1952? This, of course, is no surprise to Iranians. But although these government investigations did, uh, like I say, turn up some surprising materials, uh, there was nothing definitive about the Kennedy case. And then a private citizen stepped forward and changed everything. His name was Robert Groden. He was a photographic analyst, and through a series of unusual circumstances, a copy of the Zapruder film came into his hands. Evidently, while he was working on it, he decided to make a copy for himself. Robert Groden went to Geraldo Rivera, who then had a, uh, a nationwide television program and suggested to him that the nation should see this as a movie, which it had never done up to that point. It turned out that showing the Zapruder film a couple of times on Geraldo's Goodnight America caused a sensation. The public really started to think it might have been lied to. As a direct result of this, Congress stepped into the matter and decided to investigate the Kennedy assassination and the Martin Luther King assassination via a special committee. The House Select Committee on Assassinations started up in 1976, and it lasted until 1979. A lot of interesting new ground was broken. Particularly, a mysterious trip by Lee Harvey Oswald, supposedly taken to Mexico City just two months before the assassination. 
The HSCA decided to point out to something that had been sort of laying, I guess maybe not in plain view, but it had been laying around not noticed by most people, which was that back in 1963, with Oswald alive as a suspect in police custody, the word went to Dallas that we have tapes of him at the Cuban and Russian embassies in Mexico City from two months before the assassination, of course. Photographs of the suspect and tape recordings were then requested. Several photographs were produced by the CIA of a man who was very obviously not Lee Oswald. His identity is a mystery to this day. But more importantly, an audio tape did show up where the person on the tape identifies himself as Lee Harvey Oswald and remarks upon some of the suspicious things he'd been doing, like going to the Russian embassy to talk to the KGB agent there in in charge of assassinations. The man spoke pretty good Spanish, but apparently broken Russian. Now, Lee Oswald spoke good Russian and lousy Spanish, and by all accounts, they realized that the man on the tape is not the man in custody. Now, the House Select Committee took another, yet another look at the medical evidence. At this point in time, there had been a lot of evidence suggesting that the president had been shot from the front. That was based on what the Dallas doctors observed when the stricken chief executive was brought in for them to work on. The House Select Committee, in its pages, confidently told the public that we have talked to 26 witnesses that were at the autopsy, which of course had to be a more thorough examination, and all 26 agree that the witnesses in Dallas were all wrong. There's no evidence based on what we saw that the president was shot from the front. After making that bold statement, they then classified all the interviews till the year 2028. But before they concluded their business, someone produced a dicta belt taken by the Dallas police. A police officer had an open mic on one of the uh, radios in the motorcade, and it was determined that during the exact moment when the shots rang out, impulses were detected on the tape consistent with the signature of gunshots. After doing acoustic testing that matched where in the plaza that microphone might have been, an excellent match was obtained to the position of one of the police officers. But the plot thickens. There weren't three shots heard, but five. And one of them was very definitely matched to the position known as the grassy knoll. But the HSCA had a mandate to finish up their work by the end of 1979. So they did. They said, looks like JFK was killed by conspiracy. We recommend the Justice Department do further investigation and drew things to a close. And that is where it stood up until Oliver Stone. In 1991, 16 years after uh, Robert Groden and Geraldo Rivera got the whole nation in an uproar, Stone did it again. By the way, I've, I saved some months ago Mick LaSalle of the Chronicles a review of the DVD for JFK. I think it might be a good time to quote from it. Said LaSalle, Oliver Stone's film about Prosecutor Jim Garrison's investigation into JFK's assassination makes for one of the great films of the 1990s. Agree or disagree with its conclusions, it's without question an entertaining and passionate work of advocacy that finds its director and lead actor in top form. Seen again in this 200-minute director's cut, it's fascinating the way Stone's able to sustain interest while presenting a story that's almost entirely expository. I'd remembered it as a film with lots of action. In a sense, we experience it that way. But in fact, most of JFK consists of scenes in which people tell stories, incomplete versions of what they saw or what they believe happened on November 22, 1963. Some of these accounts go on for long stretches and are exceedingly involved, but Stone never loses the viewer and manages to maintain interest and keep the narrative alive with kinetic intercutting. It's a brilliant blend of ideas and sheer technique. 
Yes. In fact, it almost certainly would have won the Oscar the year it came out, except for the fact the government lobbied heavily down in Hollywood to keep that from happening. Instead, the Oscar that year went to Silence of the Lambs. A good film, but in this correspondent's opinion, not as good. With the nation in an uproar once again, it was decided by uh, the powers that be that something may need to be done about this. The reason for this is that in the final scenes of the movie, the following appeared on the screen. A congressional investigation from 1976-1979 found a, quote, probable conspiracy, unquote, in the assassination of John F. Kennedy and recommended the Justice Department investigate further. As of 1991, the Justice Department has done nothing. The files of the House Select Committee on Assassinations are locked away until the year 2029. That got people's attention. Of course, the Justice Department did have the option of reopening the case, but instead, it put together the Assassination Records Review Board. The mission was to go forward and find files that were relevant to the case, and unless there was a compelling national security reason to keep them uh, classified, turn them loose. And over the next few years, a lot of documents were declassified and a lot of interesting things popped up. For example... When the House Select Committee said in its report back in 1979 that the 26 witnesses at the autopsy all agreed with each other and there was no evidence for conspiracy or a shot from the front, well, it turned out that's not what people actually said when you read the interviews. In fact, in some cases, they drew drawings and diagrams showing how what they observed in Bethesda was the fact that the president had the back of his head blown out. This, of course, is consistent with a shot from the front. A lot of JFK researchers were feeling pretty vindicated by a lot of this, not the least of which was Josiah Thompson, who back in 1967 had gotten the Justice Department all worked up over what he was about to publish. He has a new book in the works, by the way, titled Last Second in Dallas, which I think explains a lot of the mysteries of what happened when bullets came whizzing into the car. He talks in the new book about how his interest was reignited by a seminar held in San Francisco by, uh, by our mutual friend, Dr. Gary Aguilar, who's been on the show on numerous occasions, he got together a couple of physicists to uh, take a look at what was thought to be one of the most compelling pieces of evidence supporting the government's view that the assassination was the work of one man. It was called neutron activation. Neutron activation analysis is a way of, an, of analyzing the lead in a bullet for various impurities that would enable you to tell you, in theory, which batch of lead a bullet had come from. So precise was this analysis, we were led to believe, that it was able to say that the bullet, which supposedly hit both the president and Governor Conley, could be matched to a fragment taken out of his wrist. Furthermore, the fragments taken out of the limousine could be matched to a fragment removed from the president at autopsy. According to Vincent Gwynn, his neutron activation analysis showed that there were two and only two bullets involved in the crime. The trouble was, as... Uh, the physicists explained at the seminar in San Francisco, this was complete and utter poppycock. The only way you could do that is if you were assured that the lead being used in a batch of bullets was so thoroughly mixed that it was exactly the same throughout the batch, and that is just not how bullets are manufactured. In reality, neutron activation not only couldn't tell you whether a fragment came from one particular bullet, it couldn't even tell you whether it came from the same industrial-sized vat of lead. Well, I was hoping I could do that in 10 minutes, and it took 30. 
let's assume this narrative is pretty much caught up to 2013. Take a break and come back about and come back and talk about what people were discussing now, 50 years on, in the year 2013. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Let's see what we can do to wrap this thing all up in the last 10 minutes. Stick around.